Welcome to the Love Your Truth podcast, where we share stories, moments, and lessons from life's beautiful and heart-wrenching experiences, where we explore our wounds, celebrate our challenges, and find healing in allowing all that life throws at us. Here, you will learn to love every aspect of your truth, accept your past, embrace your present, and create your future, all by loving your truth. I'm your host, Sherry Love, certified professional confidence and empowerment life coach, cognitive behavioral specialist, single mother of five, pianist, ultra runner, and human, who is still learning to love her truth, just like you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Love Your Truth podcast. This is Sherry Love, your host, and I am sitting down today with one of my dear friends, Tony Pizza. I met Tony, how long has it been? Just six months? Year, yeah. yeah, like maybe last summer. And neither of us can really quite remember how we connected, but it was through Instagram. And it was kind of a funny, like we just connected and started messaging. And then we ended up going for a run together. And something, one of the first things that impressed me about Tony was just his energy, first of all. But right after we went on that first run, knowing that we're both single people, Tony sent me a text and said, and they set a boundary, and it was so impressive to me. And he said, this connection is only ever going to be platonic. And what that did for me was create this safety for me to kind of put my defenses down. There was no ulterior motive or like hidden agenda. It was just friendship. And it, and it has given me a space to trust you as my friend and has created this beautiful friendship for us. So that was my first impression of Tony. <laughs> um, so just to give you just kind of a rundown of who Tony is, um, he has grown up all over Salt Lake. He joined the Marines at the age of 18. Um, he attended the U for journalism and was a teacher for 12 years. And he's very intelligent. It's really fun to have conversations <laughs> with him. And he, the, the, the analogies that he can come up with for life things that we're processing is, is amazing. Um, Tony found spirituality through yoga and a trip to Peru five years ago. I would love to hear about that. Um, and he found coaching through a men's group and has been exploring that for the last two years. And I've experienced Tony as a coach and as a friend and sometimes both intermixed, and he's a phenomenal coach. So, um, Tony, tell us, oh, what else do you want to tell us about you, first of all? Oh, geez, I, I, I guess I have to throw in the fact that um, on that first run, I was like, let's do, let's take it easy. Let, like, I'm, I, I think I was, had hiked the day before or something like that, and so running easy for Sherry was, let's go on a seven-mile run, and we'll maybe walk a little bit of the uphills, but mostly let's just run the whole thing. And I was like, I was definitely intimidated because Sherry started telling me about these hundred mile runs and stuff like that. So but it was really fun. We we ran at a pace where we could kind of kind of just talk and share. And do you remember the owl we saw? In the yeah, owl? that was so amazing. That was really yeah. cool. Um, it was really cool. Like to speak to that friendship thing too. I was I was definitely single, but I was starting to see another person. I had been really bad with boundaries. So you were one of the very first people that I got to meet in that boundary space where it was uncomfortable to say at the beginning, like, this is where I'm at. And uh, yeah, it was just really cool to like have that received and, and see it the way it's percolated afterwards. It's been really yeah, fun. Yeah. And it just, I mean, just to speak to the possibility that men and women can have a platonic friendship and be safe and not be concerned. You know, it, it happens often, like especially in the single, you know, community where people are looking for for partners, you know, and and just to be able to have to be able to relax into just friendship is is really powerful and it is possible. Yeah. And it's and in all honesty, like it was not a place that I was did well before, like the relationship that I was in before we met, um, it was really messy. Um, mm -hmm. so to be able to work through that and have that result in this kind of friendship has been awesome. Like I've watched my current partner right now do the same. Like she's got a lot of really good male friends that are like good people. And I remember saying like, I like getting to the point where you can look at another person that's not male or female, it's human being. Like yes. we both have male and female in us and we might manifest that differently like in our sexual organs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. 
but to be able to experience people as human beings with, you know, slightly more masculine or feminine things is what it's all about. But yeah, that sexual stuff and that relationship stuff always like has, if it's not playing a role, it at least has an overtone that needs to be cleared out of the way. So mm -hmm. it, it's been really nice to get down to the human being level and move past the, is this a potential relationship yeah. thing? And it's, it's, I've seen that work really well, but it takes a lot of maturity and a lot of like honesty about who you are and what you're looking for and, and what you're experiencing kind of push that past that, I think. A hundred percent. I love what you said about it's that we're all just humans. And I do think that to a certain degree, it's a conditioned thing that we have. I mean, yes, there, we are wired for human connection and we are wired to, as, as people to procreate, you know, it's one of our innate, um, what's, you know, natural urges, but I think we are also conditioned to kind of have this weird, like my, as a woman, my connection with men is, should be romantic or whatever. And just to kind of take out all that conditioning and just understand that friendships, friendships, friendship is friendship and, right. and can be, and there doesn't have to be any agenda behind it. And another thing that I, that I love that I've experienced in the past with having male friends, when they do enter into a committed relationship, suddenly my friendship is no longer important to them. And the fact that you have beautifully created safety in your committed relationship and allowed for there to be a space for friendship, not only for her male friends, but for your female friends as well, that, that creates more safety in the relationship. And I, I admire that and I would respect and appreciate that a lot. I think, and I, it goes both ways too. Um, there's those female friendships that are like, oh, that's a, now a threat when a new relationship comes in. So for a person to respect it on both sides, I think is is obviously a big deal. So I think that you've done a really good job of doing that. It's been really easy to talk about, Christy, my partner, and even like the subtle gestures of like celebrating, like if I have a post about her or something like that, you kind of like celebrate that, like it's a really good indication, like this is a safe place because unfortunately we are in a society where that's important is to everyone kind of showing what their cards are essentially. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so taking the time to make some of those gestures, like, Hey, I'm a safe place and I'm celebrating your guys' relationship. Absolutely. Helps, yes. Um, that. So it's, it's definitely like every relationship, it takes both sides, like making concerted effort to know. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. And communication and transparency is, is a big deal. For so sure. thank you. So a couple of weeks ago, you shared an article that you wrote about your experiences in the past with pornography. And so that's kind of what we want to talk about. Obviously, the friendship thing that came out, that was important to talk about. Um, but I would really love for you to just tell your story um, and and share kind of what you've learned. And anything that comes up, I'm, I, I'll ask whatever questions I have, you know, about that. But I think this is a topic that's really important. It's not talked about enough that pornography use, um, how it can affect a person. And so I'd love to just have you shared to start just kind of your story on that. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's funny, even the word pornography used to bring up this really huge feeling in my chest, like some, like a dog was sitting on my chest or something like that. Um, so to even be able to touch that word with more objectivity is that I'm even noticing right now, like that's a big deal for me. Um, my experience with pornography, uh, I'm going to speak from my experience, but I know like, I had a lot of friends that kind of did the same thing. Like we grew up in an age, like I'm 42. So I grew up in an age where pornography was very hard to get a hold of. But when you found it, it was kind of like this big deal. Like if a older brother had like a Playboy or something like that, like, oh my gosh, it, it was kind of like drugs in a way. Um, so my experience of it was I had very easy access to it. It wasn't hard to get to um, and get to like the wide variety of it. So to like even expose myself at like 10 years old to the whole gamut of, of stuff from like, it wasn't just like kissing and hugging and stuff like that. It was like very, very intimate sexual um, imagery, images and stuff like that. So I think at the time when I was about 10 to 12 years old, like I was even, I was 
masturbating and stuff like that when I wasn't even like ejaculating, like that's how early it happened. So my exposure to that always brought like this certain level of excitement. And at the same time, it brought this really difficult um, shame and stuff like that. Like I'm not supposed to be doing this, so I've got to keep it hidden. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's some funny stories around like all the measures that I took to be able to like watch pornography, but then also hide it and stuff like that. Like the whole, this is what's going to happen if someone walks in the room. Like these are the plans that I kind of made and it became a bigger part of my life, but nobody knew about it. Um, Cause I want to talk a little bit on this, like sure. at 10 or 12 years old, we're taking something that is natural in our body, like this curiosity that all humans have about their own body, their sexuality, and you know what what creates that excitement in them and then attaching this shameful stimulation to that and that's that's a that's kind of a big deal because i feel like we all come with this curiosity about those about our sexuality even at a young age even like younger like i remember even at the age of 6 like feeling i what i would now identify as arousal mm-hmm. you know and um and not like it felt good, but I didn't know what to do with it, you know, because we aren't really taught to explore that part of us. And so there's this shame attached. And then we find ways to kind of, you know, like pornography to elicit that feeling, but we don't know what to do with it. And so there's so much shame. So what would you, let's speak on that a little bit. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a, like we have so many tools in our world. Um, fire is a great example. Like fire can be really useful when put to the right purposes. Like it can heat your home, heat your food, all that stuff. And it can be really destructive if, you know, you abuse it. Sex and stuff like that is the same thing. So having access to pornography and also not feeling good about sharing it means I was dealing with something that was pretty powerful. Like sex is a powerful, powerful thing. And I wasn't really shown how to use that and how to think about it and process and stuff like that. So a lot of that was just on my own, um, like caveman in the wilderness, like figuring that stuff out. And the only teacher I had was this overstimulated, um, idealistic sort of form of it that gave, you know, kind of a very unrealistic, um, uh, an unrealistic experience of it. And then at the same time, like, I don't feel comfortable about sharing it. So I never get any more guidance and stuff like that. And I'm always kind of stuck in this, I would call it, I don't think it's a trauma loop so much. It's just like a stress loop. It's like, how am I going to use that to help cope with my life and stuff like that? And, and noticing how it kind of fed, much like a drug. I know there's some literature out there that pornography is not like a drug per se, but for me, it comes in and feeds um, it, it feeds these empty holes and stuff like that or whenever I'm not feeling good or whatever. It was something that I kind of accessed just like someone would, would uh, with a drug. The problem is with a drug, like that's a pretty much a, a user experience that can then you know, go affect other people's lives. You know, if you steal or if you're going down the drain, this one affects romantic relationships 100%. And that's where coupling and stuff like that, it becomes, it became a struggle. It became the real difficulty. Um, and I, it was something that I was completely unaware of until I was able to step back and be like, wow, how much has this actually impacted my life? So let's talk about that, how it has impacted not only your personal life, but also your relationships, your romantic relationships. Yeah. So my experience of sex, like it's kind of a double-edged sword because I learned a lot. Like I learned like what was possible and like had some ideas and so i mean i was very like educated in like what was possible in sex which is good as a sexual partner when it's like hey i want to explore these things and i was still like respectful of it i'm like i don't want to do these some of these things that i've seen like if that's not what i was looking for there was still a respect thing so it became good sexual education on one hand but on the other hand it was like you're looking at women who are you know, with breast enhancements or all the other things to make the ideal female body look the way that it is. And you're having an unrealistic experience of that, plus the unrealistic experience of like a guy who does this thing. Like one of the, I would say, I would venture to say like one of the most unrealistic 
part is how then I look for a sexual partner has to kind of fit that unrealistic model. And the second is like the male's performance. So I would say a lot of men probably suffer to some extent with either some sort of dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, and like premature ejaculation would be like one of those top things. Mm -hmm. So watching these guys like go the way that they are going for 20 minutes and you're like, that's the, that's the standard I need to meet. It's, mm-hmm. it's like going into the gym and your only experience of going to the gym is like watching Arnold Schwarzenegger do all those things. It's like, that's an unrealistic, realistic expectation of how to graduate yourself to that level. So that automatically involves shame when you start having sex and you're like, oh, I'm not performing the way this person on the video was when that's like, you're, you're not going to perform at Olympic quote-unquote Olympic levels and and it's just unrealistic that's Mm -hmm. kind of the bottom line that also doesn't leave very much room for individual couples to explore each other's preferences as a couple you know because there's this ideal that we all think we have to live up to and I think women also feel that same pressure to a certain degree like looking a certain way or you know performing a certain way or having X amount of orgasms or whatever. And if I don't, then something's gone wrong. Right. And it's all about um, the the result of, you know, the orgasm being the result, you exactly, know, yeah. and in the longevity or like, you know, and, but individually as a couple, you know, your experience together should be about connection and about the experience together, not about the result. And the result is an awesome extra thing, you know, right. and, and something that I think the pornography and industry does give not just men but women as well is that the expectation that it's it should be a certain way when it's just like there's room for exploration for couples if we don't have that kind of expectation absolutely um yeah so it it kind of primes up that drive um and i like what you said about it it focuses on the the rival Mm -hmm. and i don't remember what book that i was reading it was some sort of tantric book that talked about when we we are in the United States, we even live in a culture where it's like, I need to, I'm always looking for the next thing. So I'm not enjoying the moment. So it's like, I'm always looking for the climax rather than enjoying like each piece of it is its own beautiful experience. It's its own bite of food. We don't eat food that way where we look forward to the empty plate. We want to enjoy and like savor each bite and it becomes a beautiful experience. So yeah, it, I think it definitely programs an expectation that that's not part of it. Like for my experience now, especially with, you know, my partner, like the whole experience is enjoyable and none of that is portrayed in pornography. None of the, the intimacy and the sensuality that comes before that. Um, so it's always kind of focused on that end goal rather than focusing on like the present moment, like each, I'll say stroke, each like connection and, and stuff like that. So it definitely kind of like bypasses that and um, it, it makes it hard. It, it makes things really, really unrealistic. Um, so you talk in your article that you wrote, um, and we can link that if you feel comfortable for the listeners so they can go read it. Cause it was absolutely beautiful the way you wrote it. Tony's an incredible writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, you talked about how you chose to face it. You got sick of it and you chose to face it and have overcome pornography use altogether. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. Right. So I mean, I've in in full disclosure, I've been married several times, like, and I and I realized that a lot of my partners were chosen with pornography, not as the driving factor, but it definitely played like a strong influence. It was it was a strong wind that was pushing things one way or the other. Um, And I know that I battled through that, like when I was like sexually placated, pornography was less in in a relationship. And whenever there was friction or something like that, that was kind of like the first go-to. Um, and I knew that it, I, I didn't like it gripping my life. I didn't like anything controlling me. I, I mean, you with drugs or any other usage of stuff, like I don't like when things control me. I want to have command over my own life. So I knew it was something that was, that was important for me to gain command over, but it was so frustrating because I could go like, I go weeks and then all of a sudden like that urge felt overpowering and nothing would satisfy it other than you know the pornography or whatever so it became like this really detrimental cycle because it was something that i didn't feel like i had control over so that was disempowering and then the feeling 
of it and like the experience of it itself was sort of the second one and then feeling like I couldn't address it afterwards. It was just this huge amount of pressure. So um, the so the shame that you felt that you couldn't address it with anyone or you couldn't share with anybody about it, you're you're using pornography to combat the shame and it's this cyclical right. double-edged sword that you're experiencing. Right. And and it became the at the moment where I started to be able to talk about it, I, I call it like when I got my fingernails under it. Oh. And that was be, being able to talk about it openly in, in front of other people, like didn't solve the situation, but it helped put it at a distance where it didn't feel like I was the only one dealing with it. I didn't need other people to hold me accountable or anything like that. I just, I needed, I needed it to not be in my head anymore. And I think that's very much the same as like all problems and stuff like that. There's an amazing amount of bravery in sharing something, whether it's, you know, abusive relationship or whatever you're feeling, once you can speak to it, it's no longer rolling around in your head. Like even journaling works that same way. When I'm able to write it on paper, my mind doesn't have to like hold it anymore and keep analyzing it. It, it can set it down. Mm-hmm. So that was probably a big, um, a big step. But getting to the point where I was like, I am going to release myself from this is something I had like over 20 years experience. Like, okay, I'm going to do it. It's like any goal. Like I'm going to go to the gym and then all right. of a sudden. You're going to white knuckle with your way through it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I didn't do it. And then there's that failure piece. I can't do this anymore. So it just keeps layering it on. So my experience with it was very much the same way that I entered into um, being a vegetarian. And I looked at how I was feeling and I knew that the relationship wasn't good from just those like indicators. And so I'm like, well, how do I look at this? I'm going to look at it really mindfully. So the way that I approached food was very much the same way. Like, why do I stop eating McDonald's? Because I'm going to pay attention to what my cravings are before I eat the McDonald's. Then I'm going to watch what happens after I eat McDonald's. And watching myself like go through the craving and then how quickly it ended afterwards. But then having that having that voice that's kind of left afterwards was really important. So I would say before engaging in pornography or any sort of habit, there's two voices like do it, the don't do it voice. When the do it voice is really, really strong and overpowering, like, and it wins, you obviously do the act. That don't do it voice is the only one left after the act, whether it's food or pornography or whatever. And that's the only one that gets to speak because the do it voice is like sitting back there comfortable. Like I got what I wanted. And that one gets to speak for so long and kind of create this, this shame loop. So I literally just use those voices and I, and I let them both speak very loudly. And I let the do it voice speak. I entertain the do it um, voice. And then afterwards, I really listen to the don't do it voice as well. And the why did you do that sort of voice? And what I noticed, and I kind of did this very ceremonially, like in a, at my altar and like watched a pornography video that like I I'm pretty sure it was one that I liked, but I don't really even remember which one I engaged in. But I paid really close attention to what my body was sending signals before. And I even paid attention to the don't do it voice. And I said to the don't do it voice, can we just watch and see what happens when the do it voice like gets to be in control of a vehicle for a while? So I went through the whole process, like was very intentional throughout steps and stopped and like asked myself and checked in with my body, what's going on? What am I feeling? And then afterwards, when it happened and the do it voice was quiet, the don't do it voice was like, now we get to pay attention to how we feel afterwards. And when I sat with that voice for a long time, it's like, this is the lasting feeling afterwards. This is the three, four days, the week of, why did you do that? Why are we letting do it voice win? Like, what is so compulsive and what is so, you know, what's that itch and stuff like that? And is it worth it? And that was the big question for me. Was it worth it? And the easy answer was no, it wasn't worth it. So it was almost like I needed the don't do it voice to be able to speak up in that space. So that whenever the impulse came again, the idea was, yeah, this seems exciting, but it's also not worth it. And when the not worth it became the stronger story, it gained power over time as I consistently chose not to do it, not to do it, not to do it. And I don't think I'd ever gone longer than like, a couple of months without engaging in pornography. And once I kind of got in that momentum, six months had gone by and I'm like, holy sh- holy crap. <laughs> we can swear on this okay. podcast. <laughs> I guess we're talking about pornography, why not? But 
Six months goes by, wow, I've made it six months. And that didn't feel hard where before it felt so challenging. And so it was just that dynamic of, is this something that I would choose in my normal sort of life? No. Then why am I letting that impulsive voice? Something that is really powerful here that I really want to talk about is before, like the white knuckle effect, you're ignoring the do it voice. You're trying to like, you're ashamed of the do it voice. You're, you're like, do it voice. You don't get to have a voice here. Like, go away. We're going to ignore you. But he's still sitting here. He's still talking, but he's, but, but you're trying to just ignore him. It's like a kid throwing a tantrum in the grocery store. You're just going to try to like, you either give in and give the, the toddler a sucker, you know, to shut him up, like giving into the pornography, or you are like, you know, like, or you ignore him, you know what I mean? And like, I'm just going to pretend it's not happening, but it's clearly happening. So that process of you allowing that part of you to have a voice and showing compassion saying, okay, what's, what do you have to say about this? And then giving all of those parts of you a voice at the same time, like almost like this really cool exposure therapy kind of situation. Um, I think that is how we create wholeness in ourselves and allowance so you're showing compassion for that part of you that has that impulse and you're allowing the, the toddler tantrum to happen, but you're not giving into it and you're not resisting it. You're just allowing it. And that's, I think that's really applies to so many different things. It's applied to a lot of things in my life. It's just giving all of those parts of us, like who's here? What are you, what are you really asking for? What do you really need? Cause it's not actually that the action, like the action of looking at pornography, it's there's something other than that, that it's needing and that part of you deserves attention. Totally. Um, You said something that brought up two really strong points for me. Number one, I was sitting at my partner Christy's house the other day and we were washing dishes and her son wanted a breakfast burrito that she was making for the next day. And she's like, hey, we don't have enough tortillas or whatever. So he like went in the bathroom and like slammed the door. He was pretty upset and he said to her, shut up. And I was like, oh, and the first thing was like, oh, why did you say that? Like, we've got to go in and control that eight-year-old and don't do that. And as I was kind of like letting that thought percolate a little bit, it was weird. I've said percolate twice now. I'm gonna not <laughs> We're in a coffee shop right now, so it's fine. <laughs> so I, I thought about it for a second. I'm like, what is he really upset about? He probably wants some attention from his mom. Yeah. And I, so that's what I asked her. I'm like, do you think that you and, you know, your son can like – is he asking for attention? And that's not too much different than what you just said. Like there's a part of us that's asking for attention and if we ignore it, yeah, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing is even in sexual encounters and stuff like that now, there I, I've learned a lot about what sensual touch means and kind of how that is its own beautiful thing and it doesn't always have to lead into sex. Mm-hmm. So even noticing my own like sexual drive and stuff like that, I don't think it's diminishing, but it's definitely like, hey, you're in the middle of sensual touch. It doesn't have to graduate to sex all the time. That's something I didn't have the capacity for a couple of years ago, where it's like, can't we just enjoy this moment? Because not that sex is annoying or a a burden or whatever, but I mean, you've got kids around in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, it's definitely like its own time and place for it. Mm -hmm. And always need to graduate. Like the first time at sensual touch and to go into that moment was probably exhausting. Um, especially for a partner who like needs to try and keep up with that and has a million other things. So getting to the point where sensual touch is valuable in and of itself was something I didn't have the access to because I, it was always like full gas pedal. Yeah. That you're like the end it's again, focusing on the end result rather than the experience and the, and the connection in the moment. And that's, I know that something that women need is a buildup, uh-huh. you know, and, and safety. And I mean, all people need safety. Um, and so the idea that I'm just, you're just showing affection to me and you're just paying attention to me right now in this moment, if it leads to sex, beautiful. If it doesn't, it doesn't have to, and I don't have to feel pressured by, by it having to come to that place. So, yeah, I don't want sex to feel obligatory when it gets to that point. It's, it's not how I would prefer to have that experience happen. So... I want it to kind of move and graduate to that point if, if necessary. And then if it doesn't, then there's not that shame and stuff like that. Like we just did something just to have that end goal again. 
Um, it reminds me of this, and there's this tie into this book that Christy and I are reading called Come As You Are, and we're reading it together, which is really cool. And understanding that everybody's like sexual experience gets to be different and everyone has kind of like their own unique lens and their own unique bodies kind of entering into that. But having a lot of respect that another person's experience through sex is, is okay. Like we don't have to get to that end point all the time and maybe someone doesn't want to get to that end point all the time. And I don't think that that was ever okay for me before. It's like once we're on the path, like we've got to get to the end or else, like, or else I'm going to be disappointed or whatever. But then once the central touch starts happening, it's like, that better be the end goal. Like we got in the car, like there's no turning around on the road trip. Like, I don't care what it is, or I'm going to be disappointed and stuff like that. Even if you have a flat tire. <laughs> exactly. Or, or something else is going on. It's like, right. so we limped into the finish line or, or we got to the finish line and there's all these weird, you know, emotions and feelings and stuff like that. And now it gets to be this wow like sex is a very beautiful part of our lives not our lives <laughs> we keep <laughs> saying our, <laughs> christy and my are it's a very beautiful part of a relationship yes but it is not the focus anymore it is not why i'm in relationship it is a very beautiful part of it and i don't have to go to dinner just to eat dessert and i don't have to always have dessert at dinner either it just becomes this beautiful part where it, it's a highlight and it's something that i get to experience with her and only her as a beautiful sort of expression of a relationship, but it's not the thing even driving our relationship anymore. It's complementing it without becoming the dominant sort of point I, of it. I think that's a really good, something to, to focus on is that lack of expectation. And that applies to so many things in relationships, not just sex. Right. But I mean, the sex is a really big thing that people focus on in relationships often. Um, but just to touch on that idea that expectations can create, you know, issues in a relationship, um, expecting a person to communicate X amount of times during the day or expecting the relationship to move at a certain pace or to go a certain direction, or that just because you're committed right now doesn't necessarily mean that it's forever. You know, the, the, all these expectations that we attach to relationships, and I'm approaching dating now as a single person and unattached and not in a relationship that I don't have any expectations. If I go on a date, I'm just experiencing that person that night or that day or whatever. And I don't have any expectations on where it's going to go in the future to the point that if I have someone ask me out and tell me they're looking for a girlfriend, I have a tendency to kind of shy away because it makes me feel like, I'm just the person in their periphery. You know what I mean? I'm the person in that got in the way and they're walking down this path towards getting a girlfriend and I happen to cross paths. Mm -hmm. I would rather find someone who's getting to know me and choosing me in the moment and like moments connected together create something rather than just, you know, oh, this is what I'm looking for and oh, you walked across my path. No, I love that. The image that that immediately brought up is like Pac-Man, like eating the, the little pebbles or whatever they're yeah. called, like in the way. But there's a that, that's a really good point on being at being chosen. So I can even imagine from the female perspective or, or my partner Christie's perspective, like she just happens to be the the thing that's feeling that sexual need right now. And then if not, then I have pornography down the line. Like mm -hmm. she's the one and only thing. But what it's done is it's helped me have a little bit of mastery and separation away from that being the driving factor anymore. It doesn't have the same control. What's also impressive is I don't know that like being open and, and talking to her about this would have been fine and airing it out to her. Like this is something I'm struggling with. It would have been fine, but this wasn't something that I needed like couples therapy to understand. I needed to understand it with myself. So having yes. time and energy and having this be my own experience to overcome has offered me this different lens and this different experience in the relationship. So um, I, I'm all in favor of dealing with that kind of situation as a couple. And I'm also in favor of like figuring that out. So it doesn't become, you know, it didn't become her burden to kind of like have to solve and like, oh, what am I not doing or what am I doing? It really just became, I needed this space to be able to solve like what was going on and figuring out like, what is that satisfying? I take that all the way back to when I very first um, started using pornography and stuff like that, it's totally a, a coping mechanism. And it became a coping mechanism to the point where I didn't even know it was a coping mechanism. I just thought it was a part of life. 
And like you, to your point on expectations, it brought all these expectations and on what a person needs to look like, what the performance needs to look like, what the experience needs to look like. And it, and I think the biggest point that you made that I really love is it didn't allow for her to have a different experience of that, to have a different thing. Like basically it was railroad tracks. And I'm like, this is where the railroad track needs to land. And the beautiful part about having your own car and not being on a railroad is we have the freedom and flexibility to go explore away from the railroad track. Or maybe even an ATV, you can go off-road a little yeah, bit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Or the best of all, you can go walk and go yes. wherever your human legs can absolutely, take you. Absolutely, yes. Because walking is really is the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I do have a question for you. We talk, you talk a lot about using pornography as a coping mechanism. And we there's a lot of things that people use as coping mechanisms. And there's a really common belief out there, and I'm not saying I believe it or not believe it, but that any kind of use of pornography is considered an addiction. And I would love to have your insight on what you believe to be the difference between using it and being addicted to it. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's probably a clinical definition of this, which I don't know if I'm going to touch on this or not. When you are making choices that are passive and you're not aware of them and they're just happening and they feel compulsive and stuff like that, that's how I would qualify addiction. Whether it's, oh my gosh, I ate half a, half a tray of Oreo cookies and I didn't even know it. Like that would be a compulsion. And if you do that over time, it becomes kind of addiction. Mm -hmm. I think once you become aware of it, that doesn't necessarily change it out of addiction, but it's when you're performing the action, like, oh my gosh, I'm about to do drugs or I'm about to eat a bunch of Oreos and I, I know the feeling and I'm aware of it. I think physiologically we can be addicted to something even if mentally we're not, you know, mm -hmm. gripped by it anymore. And, and that's kind of an issue that can be weighed. Um, pornography is a really interesting thing. I don't think that if you just participate in it once or even a couple of times, like that it's necessarily an addiction, but it's sort of an exploration or an opportunity to explore. I even think like watching pornography with a partner and kind of like getting some new ideas or, or talking about arousal and stuff like that can be a very beautiful process, but it's a very conscientious process too. Like you're choosing it, you have a purpose behind it and that purpose is, is a big deal. So for anybody that I, can imagine is kind of using pornography and stuff like that. When it starts to dive into addiction is when the activity has some sort of control over you, mm -hmm. whether it's subconscious and you're doing it all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this again. Or even if you're like, oh, I, I, I like it. Like what's the problem with it? But if it has some sort of like control over you and you're not actively, actively guiding that whole experience, I don't care whether it's hiking or drug usage or pornography or something like that. There's, there's addictive components involved with it. And so your ability to remain conscientious and an active participant and chooser in that is, is kind of the big deal um, for me. I like what you said about just like the conscious behavior, being conscious of why you're using it, that you're using it. And like when you talked about bringing your partner in like to get ideas or whatever, I think something that's really important there is to make sure that it is um, that both partners are, what's the word I'm looking consent. for? Consent. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> that's a good word to remember yeah. um, that both, both partners are consensual in that because I have experienced a partner that, you know, covertly manipulated me into watching and then performing the things. And that felt like abuse to me in retrospect. And so I think it's really important that there's respect in your relationship, that if you're going to include pornography in your relationship, that it is consensual and both partners feel safe and comfortable. Um, and in transparency, you know, like sharing with your partner, hey, I looked at porn today, you know, you're out of town and, you know, I had an urge and just kind of allowing the urge and just and just being transparent with your partner um, from a space of just safety and just knowing that there's that, that, that there is space for it if it's if it's something that you feel safe in your relationship, but that, you know, if she's not comfortable with it. And that's, I think that's, some, I've talked to other women whose spouses or partners have used pornography where there is transparency, but she doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with it because she feels compared. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also the idea that a, a person can't control another person's behavior behavior, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but that, um, you know, there's boundaries and in a partnership that can get a little bit kind of gray because, you know, if I had a partner that was looking at pornography and it made me uncomfortable because I, it makes me feel 
compared or like that I'm having to live up to some kind of an expectation, but he's telling me, um, I can't say, oh, you shouldn't look at porn for me. You know, like how, how would you navigate that? How, how would you recommend navigating that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, not, not having somebody else be responsible for your emotions is in my opinion, like a really responsible way to handle a relationship. But at the same time, being very receptive to what another person is experiencing that and, and hearing them out, um, that's the moment that you get to talk about boundaries and stuff like that and set, setting real clear boundaries. Does that mean both of your boundaries have to agree? No. But if, if and I'll use Christy as an example, or not an example, but kind of as the point of reference, if she has, if she's taking issue or exception with something that I'm doing, I can listen to her and understand what she's doing. That doesn't mean I have to modify my behavior just to fit her, because then that's when that coercion is happening. But her telling me that information also gives me the opportunity to meet her at her boundary or not. And if we're going down the road long enough and it's bumping up her against her boundary enough and she's like, this isn't working for me, that's it becomes a no a deal breaker. Even if she didn't know at the very beginning it was a deal breaker, we get to kind of explore that. But if I'm like truly loving her and have compassion towards her and want her ultimate happiness, then it's just an invitation for me to start exploring what my need is there and, and having an honest talk about like, why am I needing the pornography or why am I needing these sort of things mm. so that we can both kind of understand it. And my experience is if the other person is receptive to that, then I can talk about why pornography, you know, I can tell her like, hey, this has been something that I've been dealing with for this long. and. I have a really high sex drive right now and can we also you know talk about that and have an honest uh, exploration on what my needs and what my feelings are or what my challenges and difficulties are it feels like if that can happen on both ends that understanding is kind of a key my guess is that a lot of men probably don't feel like that's either something they can touch and understand really well within themselves to communicate or it doesn't feel safe to be able to express that because if I tell you how I really feel, then there's going to be this expectation that you shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. So mm. it has to be have that openness on both ends. And, and just like I'm going to experience her emotions to the fullest and listen, if that's not reciprocated, then men don't feel safe, but they just, I think they're quiet about it and don't, yeah. and don't want to share it. And just, it, it becomes kind of that closet closet thing again. I love that you said that because like, like we talked a little bit before, both men and women deserve to feel safe in their relationship emotionally and in all other ways. And so for us women, this is a really good lesson for us women to hold space for our partners as men, that in order for us to feel safe, we need to also create safety for you to say, this is why, or to even give you the opportunity to explore that and in a safe space right. it goes both directions yeah. i i love that you spoke on that yeah like there's a there's a, a, a kind of a scenario that i throw out there like if let's say a woman did something that wasn't okay in a relationship if if a man came in and started screaming and yelling and stomping around or even being cold and quiet and disconnected that wouldn't feel safe because now the woman's experience isn't allowed in the, in the space just because a woman isn't screaming and stomping or doing that like it's not up to the woman, I think, to have the, the perfect emotional response to it, but to realize that their own emotions that they're bringing into the table have the potential of making that feel unsafe. So taking responsibility, like, wow, you told me that. This is what I'm experiencing. I'm not making you responsible for how I'm feeling about this, but it is true how I'm feeling about it, and I want to explore that and stuff like that. I believe that takes a lot of work to get to an emotional maturity level. And if it's not happening, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. I think it's completely normal. I think there's a lot of reasons why that happens. But there's always this invitation now, like, why am I not able to both feel my emotions and be emotionally responsible with them so I'm not having them spread every other place? It's not that much different from driving a car. Like, we all have this expectation on the road. Like, I'm going to handle my car responsibly, and I get to, like, move my car within traffic, but I get to do that in a responsible way. And it doesn't mean I have to stay off the road because I might affect you or bump into you. It just means I need to both hold the emotions and let them be expressed, but not hold another person accountable and responsible for that. And that, to me, is when beautiful communication and stuff, stuff like that can start happening within the relationship. These issues can start being um, touched and addressed and creating safe space but it's not like an overnight thing. It's not just like, oh, today I decide I'm gonna be emotional mature. It's a, 
Oh, it's a process. Yeah. Like I think you are the one that taught me the the application of or the analogy of the spiral staircase. Yeah. You know, you're just climbing one rung at a time. Um, and something that you said really resonates that while we're creating safety for each other in a partnership or, you know, even just men and women in general, but I think it starts with creating safety within ourselves and taking ownership of ourselves. So I can't make another person feel something or another person can't make me feel something. I can't take ownership of their feelings, but I can hold space for them to feel how they feel and vice versa. And that I need to hold space for myself. You need to hold space for yourself and not only take ownership, acknowledge, but also have compassion for and um, and just give yourself that space. The space that you're hoping to get from another person needs to start within yourself right. first. And that can be the, the most uncomfortable because oh, you're yeah. so, you, you have, full ability to drive that thing wherever you want it to. A really good example of this was the other night, like going back to the, the experience with Christy and her son saying, shut up. Like I knew I was feeling emotions and she even checked in and asked me, she's like, are you okay? No, she asked me, are you upset with me? And I'm like, I'm not upset with you, but I am feeling emotions. That doesn't mean I'm upset with you. I'm just feeling something. And I ended up going for a walk and realized during that walk that I was still feeling those emotions. And I noticed that my tendency is to want to run away. My tendency is to want to um, create like option A, B, C, and D. And I realized like, wow, this has been programmed for me from a very long time from when I was little and my parents were divorced. Like I always needed to have A, B, C, and D options. And so that's what starts going through my mind when I get into conflict is like, okay, where are my outs? Where, where are the places that I can run away? Yeah. And what I noticed was I go to that as a default to help me feel safe, but I actually don't want to run away from the relationship. I very much love being in this relationship. It's what I've wanted for a long time. So I get to kind of look at that and have compassion for myself that wants to run away. And that's my rut, my program. And at the same time, I can have those emotions. And my default was to put that on her and say, like, you made me feel this way. The whole situation around brought up the emotions that brought them to the surface, but those are mine. Mm -hmm. And so taking some responsibility for that and my default was not to take responsibility. It wasn't even to like put it on me. It was actually to push it to other people and then like want to run away. And it's like, Oh, this is justification. Like I can end the relationship or do all these things. And that's been my program for so long. So to actually look at that and watch myself in the act of like, wow, you are looking for options and you are looking to outsource this feeling was so detrimental and all it took was me staying open to my feelings and experiencing them. And it was just like the urge to do pornography. Like once I had control over it, all of a sudden I was able to look at it. It lasted for five minutes. And then afterwards I didn't make a choice based on the emotion. I made a choice based on the information that the choice or the, the information that the emotion was presenting. Totally different experience. That's so beautiful because what you, it, like what I'm picturing right now is just you almost kind of floating up above your body and observing that you're just observing all of these things. And I think something about growth and especially just, you know, emotional wellness that, you know, as we go through that process is um, that sometimes we think that we're going to arrive at this place where I don't have those same urges anymore but you do mm -hmm. always, we always will. And it's just a matter of acknowledging and observing and giving compassion for that part of you and understanding where it came from and why and saying, okay, that's an option. And <laughs> there's also this other option. And just to, just to give yourself that, that's incredible to be able to do that in real time. Cause most of the time it happens. And then I have a reaction and then five minutes later, or maybe even the next day, I'm like, Ooh, that happened again. Like I had this, you know, like unconscious. So becoming more conscious and observing continuously, it's practice, mm -hmm. right? You get better at it. It's like practicing the piano, muscle, you know, yeah. you just muscle memory. Exactly. Um, that's amazing. Thank so, you for that. And and I want to be very fair to myself. Like it was not a real time. Like I love the idea, like, oh, you were floating above. <laughs> it took me going on a walk by myself for about five yeah. minutes, 10 minutes or whatever. And I was in it. Like I was totally in it. And then all of a sudden it like drifted past. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so attached to it anymore. But it was absolutely like this practice and this process of not um, identifying with my emotions, which is, which is awesome. And it does take time. Like I, the other thing that I like that you said, and I'll, I'll use this analogy, 
when I'm so used to those things like confronting me, it feels like my hand right in front of my face. Like my hand has not changed its size just because it's in front of my face. It's just dominating my periphery. When I can like take that hand and I can move it away from myself, it becomes part of like one within the environment. It, it's not to change its size, it's just changed its its relationship to me. Now I feel like I can deal with it. And so being able to move those things outside of that and stepping back is all what mindfulness and conscientiousness is, is all about, is like going through that process of like, I'm really uncomfortable with this thing right in front of my face right now. How can I like move it back without making blame or shame or anything yeah. changing there. your perspective yeah that's beautiful i love that tony thank you so much for yeah. sharing for being vulnerable <laughs> um it's such an important topic that needs to be we need to erase the shame around it and i'm so just grateful to you for being willing to talk about it here and i know there's going to be people out there that this resonates with and um thank you for your friendship yeah and just you. for being you you're amazing and um everybody out there um, you can find Tony where, tell us where we can find you. Um, if you want I, to be found. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Instagram. Um, I wait, uh, wild heart warrior is my tag name with a Y for the wild. Um, also our wayfinding is my coaching page, um, both on Instagram and then our wayfinding.com is my website. Um, and I want to say thank you to you. Like this, getting these topics out takes a lot of effort and energy to put together a podcast. And I know I'm guessing that you're fulfilling something very beautiful in your life, but it takes a lot of energy and effort to like meet this and stuff like that. So I appreciate that you are being an instrument to bring awareness to this as well. Thank you. Everyone out there listening, thank you for listening and I hope you have a great day. Are you ready to love all that you are, embrace all the parts of you and shine your light? and create a powerful life that you love? Join me in my coaching program, where I help my clients find their power within, grow from their challenges, and love and embody their true authentic selves. You can find me at sherrylovecoaching.com and on all major social media platforms. Mm -hmm.